Welcome everybody to another episode of Sunday Morning Poetry, and today we're going to go over Nutting by William Wordsworth. Now this is going to be, for me, the most challenging poem thus far that I've done with you. It's not the most challenging poem I've read, but in discussing it, it's definitely the most challenging I've discussed publicly. And I hope as we go through this, you'll see why. Now, one of the things that, um, before we get into it, I want you to understand about this poem is actually some of the background to its publication. And this will kind of help with understanding its complexity, its importance, why it is um, more than what I think a lot of people in reading it might think of it. If you're a poetry reader and you read it, you might get a surface level understanding of it, but there is you know, in understanding and analyzing the style is very complex, and there's a lot going on. Now, th- I think this is worth reading for yourself. I think this is a poem that is the, it'll it'll hit your mind, it'll hit you as very simplistic, very easy to understand in a certain regard, and yet there's going to be a lot of um, elusivity. It's going to be, it's going to feel like it's slipping from your mind, more than likely. It's if you've ever read Milton, it's very much like that. That where it's like, oh yeah, I know these words. It's not like there's a lot of the words you probably know. Um, there's probably words you don't know, but it's it's also uh, very terse, compact with a lot of imagery. So you have to stop and visualize a lot. You have to think about it. And this poem, and this poem, by the way, Nutting is different than the poems we've been reading of Wordsworth, in that it's in. Miltonic blank verse. It's an iambic pentameter. Now, it doesn't matter if you've read Milton. We're going to talk about why it's important, though, that it's related to Milton, why the style is emulating Milton, and and the style is emulating this grandiose type of um, viewpoint. And one thing is that uh, Wordsworth had really twin interests that you'll see in a lot of his work. And I think it's why he's one of the greatest poets of all time. He's, um, you know, an important poet, and, and not just me. Most people who are study this stuff would agree with that, even if they're not fans of Wordsworth for whatever reason. And Wordsworth has, you know, like many poets, gone up in stock and down in stock during the eras since his death. And he was not unpopular in his time. He he did have some popularity, unlike some of the other poets like Keats. During his lifetime, I should say. And his twin interests are unbridled freedom and what that means and like an active course that a person takes. Now, the reason I really want, I like this poem for us to discuss is it's an introduction to something very, very complicated The uh, in poetry it is considered the the magnum opus, the greatest of all the Romantic poets poems, and that is the Prelude by William Wordsworth. And what's interesting about the Prelude, and, and I'm hoping some of this will help you understand this a little bit, is that the Prelude takes as its theme, uh, and this is in Wordsworth, the the growth of a poet's mind. So it's about consciousness, and this is going to be one of the more complicated things to understand about this poem is there's a surface-level lesson, moral, 
that's almost like a cheap slogan that you might, you know, hear from a church person. And then there's something much more profound and fundamental and, and deeper going on. And at the end, I'll try to read a little quote from another poet, a, a, a um, twin poet in a sense, or, or the, the poet that had the most influence on Wordsworth, which was Samuel Coleridge. And he is the poet critic uh, of this era. Johnson, Samuel Johnson was before Coleridge, and after him, I believe it was Matthew Arnold was the great uh, poet. I believe it was Matthew I might be wrong on that. Um, the great poet critic afterward. And these guys kind of set the tone for their era. That's how we usually uh, divide the different eras in poetry. Now, Nutting, again, is a very simplistic tale on the surface level. I mean, essentially, and I'm going to tell you briefly what it's about so you can, um, when we read it and go through it a little bit, you can have a little anchor to go on to. But essentially, it's about a little boy, and it's about the narrator as a little boy. And it's a little boy who, you know, goes out, he's in ragged, torn clothes, he's got a, what's what in the poem is called a wallet, but just, uh, it's really just a stick with a bag on it. Uh, for provisions, for your food and such. So, you know, he's he's going out into the the forest, into the, the wilderness to some degree, not far from his home. He talks about his dame, which is his mother. And he uh, also has a nutting crook. Now, I'm going to pop this on screen. So what uh, what he's going after are these hazelnuts. And you have like a little stick and you're, you're poking at these things and you're grabbing them down and you're, you're basically getting the nuts so you can eat them, right? And this is, this is like what he's after. He's a little boy. He, you know, if you remember being a child, but especially if you were a boy, eating was a big thing. Like you loved sweets. You loved to eat anything you can get. You know, this is a time before all the, the, uh, abundance of food that we have here, although he wasn't poor or anything, but, Still, what you know, it's not like there was a fast food restaurant on every corner. So this kind of thing is a treat. So you have to think of it in that in that regard. And um, you know, so so, but when he one of the things he finds is this um, bower. Now, a bower is something I've talked about a lot. It's one of my favorite for whatever. Well, I think I've mentioned before why it's one of my favorite poetic poetic terms. But it is a, a nice thing that I think illust a nice word I believe illustrates what poetry can do for you in real life. Like one of the many things that it can do. And one thing it can do is it can elevate your daily life. So bower is a, just any kind of shady tree. That's really as simple as that. You know, just boughs, B-O-U-G-H-S, are the limbs. You can see the limbs here. And it's just, you know, just, just the limbs and, you know, with leaves and a bower is just kind of a shady, shaded crook that you can like lay under. And, and one of the reasons I think this is telling of poetry is that when you go out into the world and let's say you are in a relationship, you know, you find a shaded tree and you kind of just hang out under it, do whatever it is that you want to do. And, but the, the idea of a bower is kind of now elevated once you've read some great poetry that features lovers under bowers. Now your actual in real life interaction has been elevated and your emotions are raised, increased. You're more aware. Your consciousness is more attuned to the world in which you live. We, our minds, interact with the world 
through language. That, that's my view philosophically, that concepts are words, and that's how we grasp the world, not literally like grasping a, a nutting, you know, a hazelnut. But in, in, in the sense of creating a word for hazelnut, and in the sense of creating a crook to get the hazelnut with, and a wallet to walk around with your bag to go and to live out, you know, farther away from home and go adventuring. That these are all things that are words that temper and shade and go th- and and kind of look over or, or uh, help to shape our whole world. Now earlier, so so that's what the the basic story is. Um, you know, he goes in. He, so it's very simple, right? Now the the only thing I'm going to save the ending, and I want to tell exactly what's going on. Uh, we'll go over it a little bit, but I wanted to give you a general overview of what's happening in Nutting. Now, at the beginning, I said that this was in the prelude. Uh, I think I said that, or I, or I might have um, said something implying that. It actually wasn't, but it was intended, and this is the background information on the poem that I wanted you to know. It was intended for the prelude. And when it was, um, and what Wordsworth said was that he he said it doesn't belong. This doesn't belong here. And he cut it out and he included it in, and this is the version I like to read, um, uh, the Oxford World's Classics of Lyrical Ballads that includes 1798 and the 1802 versions. So the, in the 1802 version of Lyrical Ballads, which we've been reading from recently, we did uh, Two April Mornings, which is a Matthew, if you remember, a Matthew poem. And the fountain, which is a Matthew poem, and we, and this is the next poem in the list, Nutting. So he cut Nutting out from the prelude, and he included it in lyrical ballads because it didn't belong there. And the reason it didn't belong there, and the reason it's so good for you to get it and read it, is I almost guarantee you're unless I do a series or, or you read some series, you're never going to experience the prelude. I have a feeling you won't. <laughs> And I don't say that anything against you, but the prelude is, you know, if you listen to Nutting, it's like that, but, you know, like 100 pages of that. And it's pretty intense. And it's not something I think you can pick up casually. I mean, you can't just pick up, um, you know, even though people will tell you you can, it's not, I don't think it's true. You can't really just pick up Homer's The Odyssey and The Iliad. To some degree, you do have to kind of tackle it. And uh, although I would I would argue that it's actually easier to some degree to read some of these ancient Greek texts because they've been t- translated. So I've given you good translations of those texts in the past that are, you know, changed in such dramatic ways. I mean, even though the spirit of it there, the the main text is there, but it's it's put into um, verse, you know, a type of um, um, reading that is easier for us. To, to ingest. Um, obviously, you're not reading a 2,000 or 2,500-year-old text. You're really reading an interpretation of that text by a scholar or an expert and someone who's good with language. In English romantic poetry, you know, and even with uh, Milton, for instance, there's no translation. It's the same thing with Shakespeare. So um, it's, there's, a, there's an added challenge in a certain sense with doing it that way. And part of the challenge, I think, is that, um, one, the language has changed. And a lot of the language that we use today 
comes from this, but they're using, comes from these texts, but they're using it in the first sense of this. So it's, you know, a lot has changed in the, our sense, but, but they, um, you know, haven't done quite, or, or they're just starting the process that has changed to how we use some of the language today. And there's, but I think there's a complication or a difficulty when you're reading English texts that are a couple hundred years old and aren't translated. Now there's helpers in here, but my point is simply that the prelude is, I think, uh, something you definitely need to tackle, not just casually pick up, right? So, so I, I have a feeling you're not going to read. Long story short, I have a feeling you're not going to read the prelude. Um, and maybe at some point I'll do some long series, but only if there's any interest in it, because I don't want to do it for like ten of you. So if I'm going to lose you guys after like two episodes, I don't want to do it. But if there's enough interest, maybe I'll do it at some point in the future. But anyway. This is a good introduction to that because what, like I said, you get is the same kind, you know, it was meant for the prelude, so you get the same feel. It's about consciousness. Like, that's one of the underlying themes here. And I'm going to read it in a second, and then we'll go through some passages, and hopefully you'll read it more and more. And again, if you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or TroubadourMag.com, you'll see a the writing of this if not i'll you know really try to listen but most importantly i would really recommend especially with this one really with all great poems but to to just go online get out your iphone if you're driving great just enjoy my sultry voice dun, dun, dun. and uh, you know and, and then just listen to it and read it later but if you can pull out your phone google nutting poem and pop it up and, and watch if you need to, or, or you know, if or uh, you know, read along. Now, the reason I think this is um, such a difficult poem, or one of the other reasons I should say it's such a a difficult poem. I'm I'm doing this at night, so I just notice how shiny my head is. If you're watching this, <laughs> um, but the reason, side note, the reason this I think is such a critical or difficult poem is because it is a truly philosophical poem. I'm not a philosopher. Uh, I, I've, I minored in philosophy, but I don't know if that really means much. I read some philosophy. Uh, I studied at the Ayn Rand Institute a little bit for, you know, all Ayn Rand's philosophy and some other philosophy. Um, but so I, I don't know. I'm not qualified. I'm doing my best here. My understanding is John Locke is a pretty influential philosopher in the 18th century. He's mid, I think, early to mid-18th century, 1700s. This poem and the Romantics are heavily influenced by him. And I don't know all of John Locke's philosophy, but I know that the basic gist, if I remember from my Google searches and my my Wikipedia, as well as hopefully some of the um, texts that I did read, believe it or not, in, in college, um, is essentially the idea of your five senses. You know, it's very Aristotelian, if I understand it. Your five senses are what, you know, shapes, you know, you're born tabula rasa. There's, you're just a blank slate. And your five senses are kind of like five pathways in a sense that, in a sense, five pathways that then mold and, and type on, you know, imprint on your mind. And that's how we get ideas. And now what Wordsworth is really interested in is human psychology and the association of ideas. 
This is one of his critical themes through a lot of his work. It's human psychology. Remember we talked about with Matthew in the last couple episodes, if you were watching those. Says, Matthew is this old guy. He's talking to uh, Wordsworth, a young man. And he's suddenly struck, for instance, by two April mornings, by how this April morning is exactly like one, thir- I don't remember the years, like 30 years earlier. When he saw, uh, when he went to the grave of his daughter. So it's like a memories of a memory, like there's different levels going on. And these are called, um, he calls the fountain, another poem, the one we did last time, he calls the fountain a conversational poem. And all of them are kind of conversational poems. I'm going to spoil this one. This one is a conversational poem. We find out at the end, he's talking to a young maiden. So there is a conversation element, um, which is why I'm such a big fan of conversation, because I think there is something special that happens in, not, you know, in in discourse, however you want to understand it, where you're trying to explain something to somebody. And so you're using words, you're trying to give analogies, you're trying to, you know, anchor it in their head. And in so doing, you're anchoring it in your head and you're in their head. And in so doing, you're anchoring it in your own head. Now, when you do that, you come up with different associations that you may not have thought about. So the two April mornings has that overarching theme of being about metaphors as such, as well as the, the, um, you know, what a metaphor is, how it works in the mind, and then how it works for this individual man, Matthew, as he's remembering this loss that he experienced. And then how he's remembering how, well, you can't, you know, he does, you can, or he's, understanding the moral lesson that you can never replace what you've lost. And in the fountain, we have something very similar where the Wordsworth character says, I'll be a son to you. And he says, no, we cannot be that. And there's the fame, there's the famous line, the beautiful line. If I remember, let's see if I can remember this off the top of my head. The wiser man mourns less for what is taken away than what is left behind. And what he's saying in that one is the idea that, Things are taken from you like a life. You know, you lose a child. It's gone. It's taken. What's left behind is actually left with you, imprinted in your memory, in your mind, stuck with you. It's the emotion, the grief, but also the the grief of the death, but also the joys of their life. That's what's left behind. And that kind of shading of your whole life. So, you you know, you only only a, a loved one is taken away once. And what's left behind is everything you had and felt with them before this. So in various pra- places, like in the preface of the, pra- the prelude by Wordsworth, he talks about that this purposefulness in generating or, or developing your consciousness, that the reason he is okay with expressing emotions, and this is how we think of the romantics, is this emotional creatures that, you know, these are, highfalutin, high emotions, strong passions, all about nature. That's how we usually typify the romantic. But what he, he what Wordsworth himself says is, hey, I trust my emotions because I've done the writing and the thinking beforehand, which is, by the way, what Ayn Rand would say in a, in a rough sort of way, is that your emotions are a reaction to your previous thoughts, your previous observations and conclusions. And as far as I can tell, Wordsworth wholly agrees. 
Now, I want to read you something from Ayn Rand, a quote. And before I read nothing, because I'm going to argue a little bit here that these romantic poets and, and Ayn Rand is really more romantic than even I thought. Like there's more of a romanticism, you know, than, than I imagined. Um, you know, she must have read these guys and didn't really talk. She didn't really talk about the poets. I'm very interested if anybody knows her views about the poets and especially the English poets. I know she was a big fan of, um, you know, the French uh, dramatists, uh, you know, like Hernani from uh, Victor Hugo and, and all of Hugo's stories, as well as Edmund Rostand and uh, Don Schiller and, and uh, various other romantics of, although I don't know if Don Schiller is a romantic, but various other romantics that she fell in love with from the 1800s. But she must have known and understood the romantic poets to some degree. So, I, you know, I'd be curious if anybody, anybody knows. Okay, so let me read this really quick passage from Rourke. If you haven't read The Fountainhead, that's okay. I'm not going to go into great detail here. But if you have, and you're interested in Iran, I think this will be an interesting uh, correlation or, or in, you know, view of what romanticism is, which is this high imagination. You know, stick around, I'm going to read a quote from Coleridge, who I think, you know, in, he, it is said of Coleridge that his greatest poetic influence was, his greatest poetic achievement was William Wordsworth. And it's, you know, lyrical ballads was done dually, even though Wordsworth wrote most of them. You know, Coleridge has a lot to say in intellectually. And in fact, the prelude was originally uh, something like a letter to Coleridge. like a, a And it was, it's to Coleridge in a lot of ways. So, I mean, it's a huge impact that Coleridge has had. He's not an insignificant person. Okay, here's the quote or the phrase of Howard Rourke talking to Gail Winant. And if you've read the book, you'll probably remember this scene. Look, Rourke got up, reached out, tore a thick branch off a tree, held it in both hands, one fist closed at each end. Then his wrists and knuckles tensed against the resistance. He bent the branch slowly into an arc. Now I can make what I want of it, a bow, a spear, a cane, a railing. That's the meaning of life. Your strength? Your work. He tossed the branch aside. The material the earth offers you and what you make of it. It's interesting to note that the eighth um, chapter, the eighth book of the prelude is, let me read the exact quote, but it's, it's basically, if I can find it real quick. Love of nature leading to love of man. And, <clears throat> you know, it's always assumed that the Romantics and Wordsworth particularly was all about loving nature in, um, as opposed to loving man. But I don't, I don't see that as an accurate reading of Wordsworth. Um, I, well, it, it wouldn't be fair to say that because I haven't read everything Wordsworth. I'm definitely, you know, not an expert on Wordsworth. But it's, I've seen that in regard to this poem, and I don't, I, I see what they're coming from, but I don't think they quite have it accurate or 100% right. I don't think it's that level of disgust or, or view that mankind is going around and, you know, destroying Earth, and there's kind of like any kind of um, misanthropy. Uh, he's not a misanthrope in this poem. There's a definite love of it. And in fact, 
I was going to say this for the end, but I guess I'll say this real quick, is the prelude is about the growth of a poet's mind, and it's about Wordsworth's mind. So there is a heavy level of selfishness and egotism going on here. And, um, you know, it's in Miltonic blank verse, but it, so which is this epic, you know, um, type of way, a way of writing. So it's almost like if you think of like, dun, 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 you know, like this epic music, and the guy is like, you know, um, standing up to go to the kitchen, opening the, the kitchen and, and grabbing some milk and cereal. And, like, dun, 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 dun. and it's like this really heroic music. And you're like, and you know, you're just looking and like, wait, why do, why this music doesn't fit what's going on imagery wise? Like the guy's getting up from his couch and he's walking to the bath or to the, the kitchen and he's pulling out of milk and he's, you know, pouring some cereal. Like that's, this epic thing and it's not so there's like a weird relationship there and that's sort of what's going on here is it's just a normal boy going into the woods and this little incident and yet it's put in this epic dun -da 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 -dun -da 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 -da. and it's got that feel to it in the you know if you're in 1802 today it doesn't really have that we've we've lost that i think but Try to think of it as like this heroic event with knights in armor and there's like battles and, and you know, fighting and arrows whizzing by your head. And it says he's going down in the depths of hell and he's fighting people and he's coming back up and he's clawing his way. You know, it's like this big epic journey and it's just a kid going and getting some nuts and that's it. And don't take nuts in any weird way. Some actual hazelnuts. So... That that I think is an important preface to the nut to nutting here, because, you know, again I think there's a lot going on. Okay, so let's read the poem, and you know we'll uh, we'll go through some of the sections. I'm not going to go line by line, but you know it's filled with imagery. I mean, there's just so many um, words that are ex you know actual images, but then there's also some illusion. You know, I'll I'll just Hint if you haven't, or I'll tell you if you haven't thought of it already. You know, in Miltonic blank verse, there's definitely a relationship to the Garden of Eden. I mean, he's going out into nature, and, you know, it's this boy going out into nature, and he finds these hazelnuts, which are like a, a treasure trove of food for him, and, and see what he does with it. Okay, so I'm going to pop this on screen. I'm going to read it once, and then we'll go through it. I'll read some passages again. Um, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, though. Okay. Nutting by William Wordsworth. It seems a day, I speak of one from many singled out, one of those heavenly days that cannot die, when, in the eagerness of boyish hope, I let I left our cottage threshold, sallying forth with a huge wallet o'er my shoulders slung, a nutting crook in hand, and turned my steps toward some far distant wood, a figure quaint, tricked out in proud disguise of cast-off weeds, which for that service had been husbanded by exhortation of my frugal dame. Motley accoutrement of power to smile at thorns and brakes and brambles, and, in truth, 
more ragged than need was. O'er pathless rocks, through beds of matted fern, and tangled thickets, forcing my way, I came to one dear nook, unvisited, where not a broken bough drooped with its withered leaves. Ungracious sign of devastation. But the hazels rose, tall and erect, with tempting clusters hung, a virgin scene. A little while I stood, breathing with such suppression of the heart as joy delights in, and, with wise restraint, voluptuous, fearless of arrival, eyed the banquet. Or beneath the trees I sate among the flowers, and with the flowers I played, a temper known to those who, after long and weary expectation, have been blessed with sudden happiness beyond all hope. Perhaps it was a bower beneath whose leaves the violets of five seasons reappear and fade, unseen by any human eye. Where fairy water-breaks do murmur on forever, and I saw the sparkling foam, and, with my cheek on one of those green stones that, fleeced with moss under the shady trees, lay round me, scattered like a flock of sheep. I heard the murmur, and the murmuring sound, in that sweet mood, when pleasure loves to pay tribute to ease, and, of its joy secure, the heart luxuriates with indifferent things, wasting its kindliness on stalks and stones, and on the vacant air. Then up I rose, and dragged to earth both branch and bough, with crash and merciless ravage, and the shady nook of hazels, and the green and mossy bower, deformed and sullied, patiently gave up their quiet being. And, unless I now confound my present feelings with the past, ere from the mutilated bower I turned exulting, rich beyond the wealth of kings, I felt a sense of pain when I beheld the silent trees and saw the intruding sky. Then, dearest maiden, move along these shades in gentleness of heart, with gentle hand touch, for there is a spirit in the woods. Okay. So, maybe take a break if you need one. I'm that was, um, you know, whether anything occurred to you during the re that listening or reading of it or not, it's okay. It's very difficult. I don't know if I did the best reading ever. There's better readings online, but hopefully that at least gave you some idea. And, uh, you know, if you, you know, you know, if you read it again or listen a, one or two more times before you move on, you know, rewind it a couple times. One of the things that I think is simple that's going on here, you know, you'll notice in these last lines here, this is when it changes. Then this is the conclusion to him going there. So remember I said the kid goes to this bower, this hazel bower, and he um, 
you know, knocks out these Hazels, and then some event happens. Now, the thing that happens before the event is his contemplation, his appreciation, his enjoyment, his almost delayed gratification for getting these. He just, he looks at this unvisited place, and he just luxuriates in, in how beautiful it is. And then it changes, though, of course. All of a sudden, you know, um, I, sh I should say, here's a good quote, a little while I stood... So before he does what happens at the end, a little while I stood, breathing with such suppression of the heart as joy delights in, and with wise restraint. So he's a boy who restrains. But it's a voluptuous, fearless of arrival. So it's just him and the name. There's nobody who can come there, right? He eyed the banquet. He viewed it, and he looked, and he gazed. But then he's, he continued, or beneath the trees I sat among the flowers, and with the flowers I played, a temper known to those who, after long and weary expectation, have been blessed with sudden happiness beyond all hope. So it's like he's appreciating, he's enjoying this moment of, wow, it's like I see this treasure, it's like you see a treasure, and it's like, oh, it's like this big moment. And he's experiencing the flowers, and he's playing with it. Perhaps it was a bower beneath whose leaves the violets of five seasons reappear and fade unseen by any human eye. So, you know, he's talking about rebirth. And this is an, an important section for what's going to happen later. So we're going to come back to that. Let's skip down to the kind of climax here. Then up I rose and dragged to earth both branch and bough, with crash and merciless ravage. So he, all of a sudden, right, the heart luxuriates with indifferent, this is right before that, the heart luxuriates with indifferent things, wasting its kindliness on stalks and stones. So the, the rhythm actually changes a bit here, stalks, it, it kind of speeds up stalks and stones and on the vacant air. Then it goes, then up I rose, and then we're going to get branch and bow. So we're getting this kind of re repetitiveness of the, the um, repeating of the the, um, the sound here to speed it up, to make it feel more violent. Out of nowhere, he just rises. Then up I rose and dragged to earth. He just grips these boughs and, and breaks them off. Trying to get rid of something. So he, he rips these boughs off, you know, he drags them to earth, branch and bound with crash and merciless ravage. So it's like this boy, all of a sudden he goes Hulk on everything. He just destroys stuff. He's just ripping stuff down. And it doesn't say why. It's just out of nowhere. Then up I rose, right? And it's uh, uh then you know, it's out of nowhere, he ups and rose, and the shady nook of Hazel's. And the green and mossy bower deformed and sullied. And he just destroys it all. That's deformed and, and sullied. Patiently gave up their quiet being. And we're going to, you know, that word patiently is important. This is part of the personification of what's happening before. When we, when I was reading, perhaps it was a bower beneath whose leaves the violets of five seasons reappear and fade unseen by any human eye. So when he's ref one of the complexities we have going on in conversations, in conversation poems, is that we remember 
after we've read it once, that Wordsworth is actually telling this story to some maiden. And so it's, you know, it's like, perhaps it was a bower beneath whose leaves. So when he's talking about he found this treasure trove, maybe it wasn't really untouched by other people. Maybe it's just my perception. Maybe it was something that is part of the natural way of things of dying, you know, how the world is always changing. It dies out, and then it comes back. It dies out, and it comes back. And maybe that's what's going on here. It fades, and then it's kind of coming back and unseen by any human eye. Where water fairy, where, where, where fairy water breaks do murmur on forever. He did that, it, you know, he, he kind of talks about the murmuring of little uh, fountains and streamlets in the fountain and the kind of idea that they are there forever. So this is older words worth talking about his boyhood. And by older, the, um, you know, this is 1802, so he's, he's actually still in his, I believe, in his 20s. So it's kind of a reflection on the past and how he viewed the past. And this is an important part of this story here. And then, like I said, at the end, it's really important to, you know, this idea of patiently gave up their quiet being. So in personifying nature here, because nature, trees don't patiently do anything. They are or they aren't. That You know, that, that adverb is important because it's almost like on the one hand, they don't really have any control or ability to do anything about what this boy is doing to this little grove. He's destroying it. And on a surface level, we could say that this is such a horrible thing, that this is the words worth talking about how, you know, industrialization just tears down stuff, and this is the part of human humanity that's just evil. But I'm going to show you in a few minutes why it's not. And by, by pointing out the patience of the uh, tree, it's almost like that's part of the symbiotic relationship that the trees understand in a way that this is just what little boys do. This is just what humans do, right? They just, there's something in them. You know, it's like um, if a, if there's like some low, like small trees and there's a big brown bear and it sees uh, something in the distance attacking its cubs and it, runs through the the, um, the the forest. And if you've ever seen the, the wake of one of these things, it can make a huge de- devastation. It can break branches and knock down trees. And, you know, this is just, like nature just kind of gives up to this. It's especially the, the wilderness part of the, the tree boughs part of nature. Is it, that's just what bears do, right? This is just what humans do. Out of nowhere, he just takes down all these hazelnuts, he just destroys everything for the sake There's a power in him we're going to talk about in a second. They're quiet. And unless I now confound my present feelings with the past, ere from, um, from the mutilated bower, I turned exulting, rich beyond the, the wealth of kings. So, at, at another level, you know, on one level, he's the boy, and unless he this is important. He's he's taught. This is important to his words with view of human psychology. He's trying to be honest. You know, this idea of human psychology. The reason I keep putting this out there in this conversation poem is that honesty is a very challenging part of human psychology. 
And if you, you know, gone to, if you go to a therapist, you know, if you think about the cliche sitting on a couch and part of what a therapist is trying to do is, you know, is telling you, is, you know, asking you to tell stories of your youth or, you know, going back and trying to understand things that happen. And one of the challenges that they work with is figuring out where things lot, you know, where things are mixed up, where there's truth, where you're just trying to, you know, put one over on yourself, where you're trying to self-aggrandize, where you're, you know, um, expanding on the truth of what occurred or expanding on the what another person did to you and how they really didn't do anything to you. They were just doing something on their own. You know, all these things are going through and that's the challenge. And, and here, before the psychoanalysis and before Freud, before all the psychologists, this is a poet doing this. And there's a lot that I think you can learn in this kind of honesty, unless I now confound my present feelings. So his feelings during the early 1800s, which we can talk a little bit about in terms of Wordsworth's biography, with the past, which is something that we do, right? Is we, we look at the past and we say, oh, it was this horrible or it was this great thing. And really, at the time, you know, you forget what you felt as an 11-year-old boy or girl. Or you forget what you like how bored you were. It really was just a boring time. And you just lolled around and you didn't really like anything. You know, or, or even these events that happened were like, eh, not that big a deal. But you look back and you, you know, look so much fondly over that that you believe at that time you were this this was such an amazing event. And if you had a time machine, you'd see that that per, that little boy or girl would say, and this is journaling is helpful here, but you know, little boy or girl would say, nah, I didn't really like that. And so you're like, wait, I built this up in my head is like this big thing. Okay, let's go closer toward the beginning. So I wanted to point out this little sequence here because there's more than mere nature appreciation going on. And I think that's clear, but I want to point out something here. So, you know, he talks about thorns, breaks, brambles. You know, he gives you these lots of these visual images here. He calls it a motley accoutrement. Or, and here's the next uh, section. Or pathless, let me rephrase what I just said, actually. The motley, motley accoutrement is him uh, of power to smile. So he has a, he smiles at these things, thorns, breaks, and brambles. He's walking through the woods, and he's actually accumulating those things on him like an, you know armor on a knight. So remember, he's using iambic pentameter. He's using Miltonic blank verse, and which is a specific style of emulating Milton. And it's this epic scene, but it's just a little boy going through the walking through the woods. And so his accoutrement, which is something a knight wears, it's the attire of a knight, the the armor of a knight. For the boy, his in his disheveled clothes and ragged clothing, is added to it thorns, breaks, and brambles. So again, it's hard for us to understand, but this is absolutely revolutionary at the time what Wordsworth is doing. He's making this grand, almost, you know, heaven and earth, you know, heaven and hell, the battle of the ages, only something that, you know, you talk about in relation to spirit or to religious, you know, uh, uh, Moses and Eve and e and, uh, um, and Adam and the Garden of Eden, only in these you know very special terms, you can't talk about just a normal boy. Not a lot, a lot, 
you know, not, especially not yourself, right? And yet he's doing just that and he's making it and it's becoming very popular. And this is a big transformation in the English world. Okay, here's the section that I highlighted if you're watching. Or pathless rocks through beds of matted fern and tangled thickets. Forcing my way, I came to one dear nook unvisited, where not a broken bough drooped with its withered leaves, ungracious sign of devastation. But the hazels rose, tall and erect, with tempting clusters hung, a virgin scene. So sexual suggestions are being planted here. It's sensual, it's sexual, it's not... You know, there's so Wordsworth is so innocent, he doesn't know what he's doing or saying. He knows exactly what he's talking about when he talks about tall and erect and tempting clusters, hungs, and you know, a virgin scene. Like it's there this is a scene of rape, although rapacity is is more um I think a better word. So this boy has forced his way into the scene. I mean, that's the rapaciousness here. And into this virginal Edenic scene. And like Eden. It's tempting to him. So he finds this area and he's tempted. But the question is, why is the tempter, you know, what is the temptation for? Right? So he sits, there's another part we need to look back at. I missed it. Here we go. So he sits voluptuously, right? That's an important, observing the scene and relishing its beauties and his power. A little while I stood, breathing with such suppression of the heart. So he's, you know, there's a relationship between his heart and the, the nature that he's experiencing. A suppression of the heart, his joy delights in, and with wise restraint, voluptuous, fearless of a rival. He's not afraid of rivals. He eyed the banquet. So there's, there's definitely a symbiotic relationship between his viewing nature and his own inner power. This is one of the reasons why I read the Howard Rourke quote earlier. If we, if you know the Howard Rourke character, he talks a lot about the ability to take the materials of the earth and through his own power as a man to break the rock, to, to create a house, to create a building from it, to bend a bow, to create a bow. Right, All the things that you can do, that is right here. I think that's all kind of implicit part of this poem. Now, what would... We're not given much, too much about Howard Rourke or John Galt from Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged about their youth and about the development of their consciousness. I think there are hints, especially with Howard Rourke, we have more hints about that. And I think that in this story of nutting, we have a story of what you could call, you know, a simply juvenile delinquency. Because it's made clear that he does more than is necessary to pull down these um, hazelnuts. He takes more than he needs, and he destroys the whole thing. And, you know, here's a little 
hint at that as well. So after he's rich beyond the wealth of kings, I felt a sense of pain. This is the very end. I felt a sense of pain when I beheld the silent trees and saw the intruding sky. Why is the sky intruding? Well, what did he what act did this boy just do? He ripped out the boughs. He ripped out the limbs. He he tore the the leaves away. So now there's a, a you know, a, I remember a bower is a, a shady covering, so the sky is blocked. But now there's a hole. So this boy ripped this tree up. And this is part of, you know, the, the, the um, like I said, the rapaciousness. It was beyond necessary. He didn't have to do that. And so there, you know, in this poem is a relishing, though, in the power of the boy. And, you know, that, and he's being honest with himself. And remember, we're, we're talking about a boy. Not, so it's not a man. And that's important. This is the development of consciousness. So this boy is feeling and experiencing this power. I mean, so where did the power from Howard Rourke come from? Where did the love of bursting rocks come from? It had to, there had to have been something early in his youth. And if anybody, you know, I've read The Fountainhead a couple times, but it's been a while. If anybody remembers, any relations there, I'd love to, you know, please email me, uh, troubadourmag at gmail.com. That's troubadourmag at gmail.com. But anyway, from my recollection of it and my understanding is that there's not a lot talk, talked about with him in his youth. And so what I'm arguing is that in, in terms of romanticism, in terms of the imagination as a form, as as a term, combining all the way that we look at the senses and our relationship to it, or what uh, Coleridge called a divine, the divine power of the I am, the development of the self. That's what Coleridge and Wordsworth, I think, are talking about here. And in this moment, although there's a darkness to it, and you know, let me read a little quote from the Prelude. And this is, actually, I wrote it down. This, I think, is where there's a departure between Rand and Wordsworth and something that they're missing that I believe Rand adds later on. Here's the quote from from Wordsworth. The mind of man is framed even like the breath and harmony of music. There is a dark, invisible workmanship that reconciles discordant elements and makes them move in one society. So there's there's some like this is the view that Rand rails against that there is this kind of dark, mysterious little force that combines all of the the, the highway of sensations that hits our eyes, our ears, our fingertips, and our touch and our taste buds. All this, this billions and trillions of little particles that hits us, and they're reconciled to these discordant or chaotic elements and makes them move in one society. We don't, but he doesn't know what it is exactly. Nevertheless, in this early period of Romanticism, what they're interested in is the unification of these things, and that's what imagination is that special power of unification. So that's what I, I wanted to kind of get across that 
that what what they're talking about and why I think romanticism is not merely about just high feelings. And even Wordsworth didn't think that it, it was neither did Coleridge or any, you know, uh, especially those. I think other romantics might have thought this more, but they were more philosophical and they were talking about the unification of our senses. So here's Coleridge. The poet described an ideal perfection brings the whole, W-H-O-L-E, the, the entire soul of man into activity with the subordination of its faculties to each other, according to their relative worth and dignity. He diffuses a tone and spirit of unity that blends and, as it were, fuses each into each by that synthetic and magical departure from Rand, he thinks of it as magical, power, to which we have exclusively appropriated the name of imagination. Now, he goes on and talks you know, about some uh, other things that I think are important too, but we'll save that for another time. But my point is that there's a lot going on that's not merely a, you know, the surface level of this poem is that a boy goes out in the woods he he you know basically destroys the woods and this is kind of a relationship or this is what man does right he just goes out and destroys things but it's much more deep than that they're very interested in and wordsworth is very interested in, in the concretes and he talks about this a lot the the relationship between the concrete and the abstract the singular and the or the particular and the the uh, grand i can't, I can't remember the word right now you know, the representative and the society and, and all these things. In other words, they're looking and they're attempting to find what Aristotle and the Greeks called the one and the many. And they're trying to bring these elements, but they're starting with sensations. And the prelude, and you get a taste of this with nutting, the prelude is, the theme is about the growth of a poet's mind. And it, it is also in Miltonic blank verse and it, the goal of it is to be a philosophical poem, but it's you get a lot of this integration of of, of visuals to this you know psychologically. So he's, th there's the the nature and all these brambles and the the bramble you know it's like um, this boy has this accoutrement, this knight like k n i g h t like he's a knight in shining armor. His armor are the brambles, the the thorns, and so on. And he's out on this adventure. And then some power within him takes over and he doesn't have the, you know, he doesn't have the will yet because he hasn't grown yet to control it. But it's just something powerful in him. And he, he rakes down stuff. He takes this. And now he has like a king, this treasure trove. So part of what has to happen is he has to become, he has to gain um, control over this innate power within him. But it's the same power that can create a nutting crook. It's the same kind of power that can, you know, bring these things, elements in together as Howard Rourke is. The problem is that these early romantics don't have that philosophical framework yet. It takes some time and it took, you know, an Ayn Rand to, to go into that more. So I don't want to go too much longer. I, I don't want to go over an hour. So we're at 55 minutes. So if you've been here this long, thank you for, for staying with us for that long. Um, I did mention one thing I want to make sure that I wrapped up and that you got what I was saying earlier so it makes sense. So 
The moral of the poem sounds like an admonition. Please don't walk on the grass. Right, as he urges on a fictive reader, this dear madame. And that the, the this is the lesson that the narrator, Wordsworth, has learned. Please don't turn on, turn on the, bat, the grass. The tale is a kind of Sunday school tagline. This is a very simplistic way of looking at things, but this is the important thing here. It is attached to sexual criminality, which is entirely natural in his view. And, uh, you know, this what is the way he describes it. This is what little boys do. So one um, urging of a reader to just kind of walk, you know, calmly in a wood is not a, a something that is easily read from this. It's something that will fall on deaf ears. But Wordsworth believed in the educative value of the landscape, and this, I think, is the the conclusion from all of this is that in that relationship and in you know. Like I was saying earlier, the chapter eight is the um, love of nature leads to the love of mankind. It's not merely a love of nature, like some environmentalists might say today, that is separate from the needs of mankind. But to understand the power of mankind, you need to put man in nature as he is, and that and and Wordsworth is very honest about that. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed. Nutting. This was for me enjoyable to discuss because it's a completely difficult, you know, out of my abilities. I think to uh, understand, and I, 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 I think that challenge is very good for all of us. And I hope that I challenged you to think a little bit more clearly about that, this poem, and particularly how these sensations add up to this psychology of what's happening with this little boy and the power within him that he exalts in. And if you have things to add, you know, um, please let me know. Maybe we can do a follow-up at some point in the future. Okay, and I'll see you next week.